If you would stand for the scripture reading, and I will read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. First Corinthians 11. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again just come to you, Lord, in, in not just the reading of the word, but, but for the understanding and the application to our lives. We know that there's nothing in this book that's not here um, for a purpose, that you've written it for our instruction, for our admonition, that we would be trained and, 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 and taught and conformed um, to the ways of Christ and all that he is. And so I pray that you would again just, just have your work in us, Lord, that we would receive from you what you have. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, in preaching through 1 Corinthians, we are now at this section here that we know as being about head coverings. And so it um, can be an emotional subject because it's very personal. Um, and um, another one of these fun things that most pastors would, in their right minds, avoid. Um, but it's the next passage, and so the Lord has it for us. Um, it's, we have to just keep in mind... Um, what's going on here in Corinth. And again, we've just been looking at a section, chapters um, 8, 9, and 10, talking about Christian liberty and people, really the stronger brothers and sisters, um, going too far with their liberties and, and taking to an extreme the truth of what God had said and, and, and not really regarding Christ and, and His humility 
um, in the exercise of those liberties. Well, another thing that is true about our salvation and, and, and the gospel message is that um, when we come to Jesus, as Galatians 3.28 says, God has no respect whether we come to him, no regard whether we come to him as a slave or a free person or a Jew or a Gentile or whether we come to him as male or female. It doesn't matter to God. We come to him on level ground and we all have equal access to the Lord. And when you place your faith in Christ, you are, we are all given the Holy Spirit in full measure because he gives the Spirit without measure. So there is no person, male or female, Jew or Gentile, bond or free, who has more of the Holy Spirit than another person. We are equal recipients of God's grace and particularly of the person of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us. There is no distinction whatsoever. That is all true. But that does not mean that when we come to Christ that there are no distinctions whatsoever between men and women. There are no distinctions in how we approach God. We don't approach Him as Jew, Gentile, male, free, um, male, female, bond, or free. But that doesn't mean that God has obliterated in salvation all distinctions between male and female. We know this for a number of reasons throughout the Bible, but just going back for briefly to Genesis chapter 1, where God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. And then, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So had there been no sin to enter the world, then we would have lived forever without dying. And we would live forever, male or female. So Adam would be alive today on this planet had sin not entered in. And so would Eve. And you would have people who were distinctively male and distinctively female. That is what God intended for his creation. And then we're told after the seven days of creation, six days of creation, and then it says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that includes male and female made in the image of God. So in other words, Jesus didn't come to obliterate the distinctions between male and female. That would make no sense. God created us in his image, male and female. And those distinctions are very good. All that God made is very good. And God made people, male and female, in the image of God. So when Jesus came and died for our sin, he did not die in order to blend male and female because there's nothing about male and female that is wrong. It is inherently good. It is inherently in the design of God because it is the image of God. God could not have been imaged by only one sex. Had God made all men, he would not have been imaged. Had God made all women, he would not have been imaged. But he created man in his image, male and female. 
So for God to be fully imaged in our humanity, he had to make both sexes, not one or the other. So Jesus didn't come to blend them. Had he done that, then it would obliterate or at least mar the image of God. God is imaged best with two distinct sexes. That's how he created us. And the reason he created us is so that he would be imaged in our humanity on this earth. Very simple things. It's amazing that they're even controversial today. There is, with everything that God has created, whether it's fish or animals or man, everything God has created is also bound by creation law to live within the parameters that God has created. A fish has to live in the water, cannot live outside of the water. There are animals have to have oxygen. There are just certain parameters that we have to live within or it doesn't work. The same thing is true about mankind and our sexuality. God has created the parameters, male and female, and that's it. And anything else is to live outside the parameters. To try and change those parameters would be to really to enter into death. Because if it's not of what, what God created, it isn't good, and the outcome can only be death. So we all, all through our lives, have to live within the parameters that God has created. Life works well when we live within those parameters. Well, I'm convinced that one of the biggest ways that we mess up our lives is by not being willing to live within the boundaries and the parameters that God has established. I will never play for the NBA for obvious reasons. But had I aspired to that and had my parents told me, Charlie, you can do anything you want. You can even be a center for the NBA. I would have gone through life greatly disappointed. Because that is a boundary that God placed on me when I grew to only five, five and a half. There are no five foot five and a half centers playing for the NBA. The same thing is true in so many different ways. We know we live in a very free society. And there is a sense in which we've told people, work hard and you can accomplish anything. Well, the anything doesn't mean anything. It does mean that in a free society, you can work hard and you can change some things about your circumstances, typically speaking, generally speaking. But you can't change everything. Some things God has designed not to be changed, that God has set boundaries on each of our lives. And one of the keys, one of the secrets of the Christian life is learning to live contentedly within the boundaries that God has established. That could be physical, our stature. It could be um, intellect. Some are made very intelligent, some are not. We have to learn to accept what God has given us and to learn contentment in it. And it certainly applies to male and female. These are boundaries that are inescapable and are not meant to be changed. And there is only chaos 
and death that enters in when we try to change what God has established. It is true that on a rare occasion there are children that are born, babies that are born, that are not easily distinguished as male or female because there's been problems in how they've been born. But it is still true that at the basic genetic level, the chromosome level, that child either has an XY chromosome pattern or an XX chromosome pattern. And God knows that child was not created neutral. That child was not, was, was, is not made in the image of God as being a blend. God sees male or God sees female. Even though the body may not fully reflect that, God at the most basic level of that child's humanity sees either a male or a female. And he never intended it to be changed. Crazy thing was happening in the Corinthian church is that apparently women who had really latched on to their equality in Christ. And it is true. In Christ, we are equal. But they had extended that to mean that there is no distinction whatsoever between men and women. And so when they came to church, they were taking off their head coverings as a way to advertise that there is no difference between us and any man in this congregation. And Paul's taking exception with this. Now you need to know, and I'm sure you do know, that when it comes to the issue of head coverings, there are, are four um, views. Very briefly, we still need to get into the text. The first view is that head coverings have no applicability whatsoever today. This was strictly a cultural and temporal thing. That's the one view. The second view is that the head covering for a woman is her hair. Third view is that the head covering is a real head covering and is applicable for today. So a person who accepts that view then has three choices to make. Choice one, the head covering is worn by all women in the church service. Second choice, the head covering is to be worn by all women when praying or prophesying. And the third choice is the head covering is to be worn by all women at all times. And the reason that some would choose that, and if you've seen the Amish or certain flavors of Mennonite, um, the women would wear their heads covered at all times because Scripture says, pray at all times without ceasing. The fourth view is that the head covering is a meaningful symbol in the ancient world, and it needs a corresponding symbol today, but not necessarily a head covering. So very quickly, I want to just address these four things and then get into the text. So the first thing, the, 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 the head coverings has no application whatsoever for today. It is purely cultural. That's a problem. The appeal to that, if you look at verse 2, it says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So the argument goes, this is a tradition. It isn't a doctrine. And, you, and so therefore, it's just a church tradition 
And like celebrating communion once a week or, or once a month, it's just tradition. You can do whatever you want. And so it's optional because it's tradition. That's a problem. When Paul uses the word tradition, he never uses it or typically doesn't use it in, a, in, a, in the sense that it's optional. He uses tradition to also describe the tradition of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising again from the dead. That's the gospel. And the gospel is not an option. So you can't just read option when you read the word tradition in Scripture. And secondly, the arguments that Paul's going to give for head coverings in this passage, none of them refer to culture. They transcend culture. The second option is to say that as long as a woman has long hair, then that is her covering. There's also a problem with that. If the hair is the covering and a man is not to have his head covered, then by logic, men should either be bald or shave their heads. Right? If the hair for a woman is her covering, then men are not to have their heads covered. So every man should either be bald or shaving his head. We have two very spiritual men, at least in this congregation. <laughs> Another problem with that, with the view that the hair is the covering, in verse 10, the woman is required to wear a symbol of authority on her head, which represents her submission. In verse 15, her hair is said to represent her glory. So the head covering seems to be distinct there between the hair, because the head covering represents her submission to her husband. And whereas her hair distinguishes her as being female, it is to her glory. Also, and this is probably the simplest way to refute the idea that a woman's hair is her head covering, is that in this context, the context is praying and prophesying. When a woman is praying or prophesying, she is to have her hair covered, her head covered. A woman can't swap long hair for short hair and vice versa at a moment's notice when she begins to pray and prophesy. When you're praying or prophesying, have your head covered. Well, if hair co head covering is the hair, then it's like, is she putting a wig on when she prays and prophesies? Because you can't just swap that. And so there there's, is a distinction made here in the context of praying or prophesying, the woman's head should be covered. So that leaves the head covering is a real head covering and it is applicable for today. And the last option, the head covering is a symbol, but it represents a universal principle that ought to be honored today, and there should be a corresponding type of symbol today for women. Those two options handle this passage the same exact way. They both say that you cannot treat this passage and say it is purely, merely cultural. And so that's what we want to look at now. So if you look with me, and by the way, this is, this is a very unique passage because Paul's going to give five arguments for why head coverings 
cannot be dismissed as simply cultural. Five reasons. I only know one other place in Scripture that comes close to this, and it's in John chapter 5 where Jesus says, these are the reasons, these are the witnesses to who I am, the reasons why you should believe who I am. Five reasons. Well, four or five, depending on how you count them. And he steps through that and he says, the witness of John, the witness of my works, the witness of the fathers, the witness of scriptures. And then you can count a fifth if you also include the witness of Moses. And so other than John 5, there is no other place in scripture where you have this many reasons given to support something. And in all of the reasons given here in chapter 11, none of them are cultural. For a woman to have her head covered. Okay, so bear with me as we quickly go through this. So what is the first reason? Verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. First observation here. He is not saying that, a, that every man is the head of every woman. Scripture never teaches that. And so this idea of patriarchy that is put onto the church where the church is, is said to have always taught that men in general or over women in general is nothing that Scripture teaches. So look at it carefully. Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman, meaning his wife. And God is the head of Christ. Okay. So the first observation, this is not... A, a statement about men having authority over all women. A man has authority over one woman, and that is his wife. The second observation is that this is about authority. Head equals authority here. Some would say, no, no, on the feminist side, no, 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 this head means source, that the, that the woman came from the man. She was, had her origin sourced in the man. And Paul's going to talk about who originates from where. But that can't be the case here. Because it says that God is the head of Christ. And if you make that God is the source of Christ, then Jesus is no longer God. Okay? Because God is without origin. God is without beginning. He doesn't have a source. So this is not about source. This is very clearly about authority. And so it's saying that in the same way that the father is the head over Christ, the husband is the head over his wife. Now that's a conclusion we may not like, and it may not be culturally or politically correct, but it is the word of God. And God never intended it to change. In fact, he will tell Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that you will spend your life trying to escape the truth of this, and it's not going to happen. It is inescapable because it is the design of God. This is not talking about abusive authority. Not all authority is abusive. But it is talking about authority. And it is good. The authority that the Father has over Christ the Son is good. And Christ the Son is not chafing under it. He's not saying, I wish this wasn't the case. He rejoices in it. He delighted to do the will of his Father. So Paul's first argument 
for this distinction between male and female, in particular the distinction between husband and wife, his first argument is based on the Trinity. The husband is the head of his wife in the same way that the father is the head of Christ. That is not a cultural argument. That, if that doesn't transcend culture, then nothing transcends culture. Paul roots what's he about, everything he's about to say is really it comes back to the doctrine of the Trinity. It is not cultural. Every man who has something, on, verse 3, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. That could be his own head or it could be a reference to Christ who is his head. Probably a reference to the one who is his authority. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. So by the way, obviously it is permissible for a woman to pray and prophesy in the church congregation. That will be important when we come to chapter 14. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. It is not Right, it is disgraceful for a woman to pray or prophesy without her head covered. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also shave her hair, cut it off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man, and this is his second argument, for, a word of explanation, a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. So his second argument is the creation order. First argument, the Trinity. Within the Trinity, there is role distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are they equal? Absolutely equal. Is there a distinction between them? Absolutely, there are distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are male and female equal? Absolutely, they're equal. Are there distinctions between male and female? Absolutely, there are distinctions between male and female. What's true of the Trinity is true of mankind because we've been made in the image of God. And so now he comes to creation. And he says there is a difference here. Are both made in the image of God? Yes. Are both made to glorify God? Yes. But there is a difference because in a unique way, the man is the image and glory of God and the woman is the glory of the man. There is something different here. Both have been made in the image of God. Both glorify God. But there is a unique way in which the woman glorifies God by living to the glory of her husband. When Ian Thomas passed away, the founder and general director of Torchbearers, um, there was a private meeting held for after his funeral for all the people that came to the funeral who were on staff at Torchbearer Centers. And that meeting was held at Mrs. Thomas, his widow's request. And she sat around that, that very crowded small room and shared some things with us about her marriage that none of us had ever heard before. And it was amazing. And we all just kind of knew Major as this, you know, powerhouse guy and, and, and just so 
articulate and used of God. And we all knew he, had, he was a sinner, and, and we saw that part of him too on occasion. But on the whole, we just go, remarkable man. Well, we didn't live with him. And Mrs. Thomas lived with the guy. And he was a stinker. And she went back and talked about from, the, from when they first got married to just months before, they passed, before he passed away and how difficult it was. And she wasn't complaining. This was what God gave her. And she lived within the boundaries of that marriage and the personality quirks of her husband for all those years with joy and contentment. She talked about how on their, on their honeymoon, her honeymoon night, they had just gotten married. And they get on a train and they go all the way to this little cottage on an island off the coast of England where they're going to spend their honeymoon. And he spent the whole time on the train reading the newspaper. Never held her hand. Never spoke to her. Just read the newspaper the whole time. So they finally get to the little cottage and she cooks supper for them and she's washing up the dishes and he makes a fire and he's got papers spread out all around where he's sitting on the floor, you know, in front of the fire. And there's not yet been a word between them. And so after she's finished up the dishes and he's sitting over there in front of the fire with all these papers spread on the floor, he says to her, come on over here and sit with me. And she's thinking, and she said this to us. She's, and, she says, and she says, and I'm thinking, now the romance starts. And so she came over and sat on the floor next to him and he says, I want to explain life insurance to you. He was going over all his life insurance because he's in the war. World War II is going on and he's going to go off to battle in a couple of days and he could die. And he wants to make sure she understands how, you know, and so he's just being very practical. And, and, and she's going, this is how my marriage started with this man. And toward the end, and again, I, I shouldn't go into all the details, but, but there's several different things. There's at least three different times when the room is going, no way. I mean, it was not easy, but each time after, you know, each of those critical moments that she was, was sharing her, her life story, she said, but I remember the words of my mom, for better, for worse, till death do you part. And she says, and it broke me, and I had to come to Jesus in order to live contentedly with my husband. And she loved her husband. And if you ever saw the two of them together, you go, this was a match made in heaven. But that doesn't mean it was easy. But she yielded and she accepted. And I'm telling you, and, and it, it was God glorified through Mrs. Thomas as she lived to the glory of her husband? You better believe it. And anybody that knows that woman today, and she's 97 years old, you know, she's, she's not much longer on this earth. And you go, that is a woman who has glorified God through her life. But she didn't live independently. She lived within the boundaries that God gave. And she lived to the glory of her husband. And God has been magnified in that person's life. That is not teaching you're going to get from the world. But that is what God has established. And that's what Paul is appealing to here. God's creation design. There is nothing cultural about what he's saying here. So verse 10 Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And then he skips and he just moves on and changes and he goes to something else in the next verse. And you're going, what about, what's going on? Angels? Where he just throws that in because of the angels. 
what about the angels? What about the angels? And so we're left to think, well, you know, are the angels looking on on our church services? Do they know that these Corinthian women are coming to church and throwing off their head coverings? Well, obviously they know. There's always going to be angels involved wherever the body of Christ is gathered together. We should know that. But what specifically about the angels is the problem here? But again, whatever it is, it isn't cultural. The Trinity is not cultural. Creation design is not cultural. Angels are not cultural. Okay? So whatever Paul's talking about the angels, it is not cultural. So therefore, this issue that he's getting at here is not a cultural issue. So what about the angels? Here's my thought on this. You can disagree with me. I can't go to the wall on it. This is my thought. Angels are probably not sexual. We have no indication in Scripture that angels are male and female. There is never a single mention in Scripture of a female angel. The angels are referred to in the masculine. Okay? But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily male. But let's just say they are male, just for sake of argument. Angels are only male. No indication that they're both sexes. Okay? So here the angelic realm, at best, is one sex. So there is no sexual distinction among the angels. Okay? There is sexual distinctions among people, male and female, in the image of God. But even though there is no sexual distinction among the angels, there are distinctions among the angels. It's not sexual. But there are distinctions of authority and function and role. So there are higher and lower angels. There are angels that stand in the very presence of God and angels that, that aren't always there. There are Michaels and Gabriels among the angels, and there are lower angels. There are angels that are in charge of entire nations, and there are angels that just look after one person. There are authority and role distinctions among the angels. And the angels know that's true in everything God has made. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a role. Everything has made distinct by God for a reason. So why are these women in this church saying when it comes to the body of Christ, there are no distinctions between men and women? And the angels are going, are you kidding me? Since when did that happen? Look around the universe. Look around what God has made. And he said, even when there is, where there is no sexual distinction, there is still a role distinction. The Trinity, there are role distinctions. And there are distinctions between men and women in the body of Christ. Just as there were at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, there is today. And the angels are going, what is wrong with this picture? When the women are acting like there is no difference whatsoever between them and the men in the church. And obviously the men are going along with it. That does not fit with the angelic realm and all that the angels know about God's order. However, in the Lord... Neither is the woman independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. Again, there is a mutuality. There is an equality. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has originated from the woman. The man, his birth is through the woman, and all things originate from God. Amen. There is an equality, but that is not to say that there is a sameness. 
If there are no distinctions, judge for yourself. Now is this fourth thing. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. So what is this nature teaching us? It's the birds and the bees. Okay, you're going to have that conversation with your kids one day. And I remember, you know... 17-year-old girl in Arkansas one time, she was talking to a farmer, and she said, and <laughs> so embarrassing, and all these cows were walking up. 17-year-old girl, and she goes, how can you just know some of those are, are, are cows and some of those are bulls? Is it because of their horns? And that farmer said, no, sweetheart, you got to look at the other end. And, and, and this 17-year-old girl goes, oh, <laughs> she, you know, for the first time, she looked at the other end of the cow. What's the point here? God has made male and female distinctive. Nature teaches us this. God created male and female to look different. Now, when we put on clothes, you can't always tell a lot of difference. Especially if everybody was wearing a robe like they did in these days. Because they're not body-forming robes. And so you go, how do you know? The hair. So even when people put on clothes, they still wanted to make sure they were not confused for being the opposite sex. So a man with a robe on would make sure that he, everybody knew he was a man. And a woman with a robe on would make sure everybody knew that she was a woman and not a man. Because there's something fundamental about nature that says we're different. And in every culture of the world, there are no exceptions. We may dress differently, but in every culture, the men look like men and the women look like women. It's only been here in the last few years that that has been blurred. You can go anywhere. Go to some you know, remote tribe in Brazil. And the women are going to look like women, and the men are going to look like men. And where do they get that? It's the way that God's intended. Nature tells us this. It's not about the hair length, per se. It is about the distinction that God has made. And then the fifth thing. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. So in other words, this is not just a Corinthian cultural thing. Because see, the church was transcultural already by this time. It was all over Europe, lots of different types of cultures. And every culture had the same practice. The universal church was doing the same thing. The Corinthians were the exception. So for five reasons, Paul is saying, you cannot dismiss this as being merely cultural because of the Trinity, because of the creation design, because of the angels, because of nature, and because of the universal practice of the churches. Well, where does that leave us? Patsy's not wearing a head covering. This is where I fall on this. Head coverings 
is a very meaningful symbol of a universal principle that is timeless and applicable for all cultures, for all times. And that principle is there is a distinction between male and female. And that distinction extends to the issue of authority and submission. And that the man is the head of his home, the head of his wife, and the wife is to live in submission to her husband. Scripture is emphatic on that point. But I believe that in this culture, at this time, and I shouldn't say culture, at this time in history, as Paul was saying, everywhere, head coverings were understood everywhere as being a symbol of that principle. That is not the case today. Let me just read for you a conclusion here from the Bible Knowledge Commentary that I found helpful. The early church adopted a convention already in use in society, speaking of head coverings. So see, before people ever became Christians, before a woman ever got saved, she was wearing a head covering before she got saved. You've got to understand that distinction. So these Corinthian women, after they got saved, were ditching their head coverings. Okay? Before she was saved, she wore a head covering. After she got saved, she ditched it. See, and so what the church has done is taken a, a, a common um, symbol of authority and given it spiritual application. So it was already used in society, and the early church gave it a distinctively Christian meaning. Baptism in Israel is a good parallel. See, Jesus, John the Baptist didn't invent baptism. Baptism had been going on for hundreds of years in Israel. John the Baptist came and gave it a different meaning. And then Jesus even gives it a different meaning. So baptism was something that was incorporated by the church that has all, was already in practice within Israel. So the question, again still quoting here from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, the question was, why are you doing this? Why are you taking off your head covering? Not what are you doing? A woman wearing a head covering in church showed her subordination to her husband and was not out of place with society. So she would have walked out of the church with her head covering on and all the women in society would have had their heads covered. She would have been just like all the other women. And when she walked into church and taken off her head covering, that would have been different and that would have been scandalous. Today's situation is obviously different. The peculiarity of not wearing a head covering in that society was tantamount to shaving the head. You see, that's the equation, that, the equivalency that Paul's making. Not to wear a head covering would be like shaving your head. That is not the situation today. The effect today can be exactly the opposite of what Paul intended. Thus, a suitable substitute needs to be found in order to fulfill the spirit of what Paul said and not just his words. We don't have a suitable substitute. If you can think of one, you let me know and we'll do what we can to start adopting it. The best we have are two things. A wedding ring, but men and women wear wedding rings. 
And this was a symbol of a woman's subordination to her husband. A visible symbol. So a wedding ring doesn't really work because the husband and wife both wear them. The other that we have, and this fits better, is the wife taking the last name of her husband. That is a picture of her coming under her husband, of her identifying with her husband. It's a good picture. But it's not visible. And that means it's also not quite what Paul's talking about. But we don't have one. I don't know, really. It, and, and the problem is, again, it, you know, head coverings are great. And I, and I want to say very, very clearly that any woman ought to feel free to come to church and have her head covered and not feel like she's going to be a pariah for doing it. That if this is her conscience and her conviction, then this is what she needs to do. And nobody else should make her feel odd for covering her head. My own personal conviction is that it, it is not, that does not communicate today to most people what it did in Paul's day. And so it, it, we're living in a time now where, where people don't understand what even that means. And, and so that's a problem. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore the principle that Paul is after. Here's some application. Three things. Number one, male and female distinctions are still to be maintained today in the body of Christ. Unapologetically. When you, I believe when a person is growing and maturing in Christ, the distinctions between male and female will become clearer and sharper. Because this is what God intended. It is to His glory and it images Him. The second thing, women are permitted to pray and prophesy in the church meeting. That is very clear from this passage. And then the third application, male headship of the husband and the wife's subordination to her husband is to be recognized in the church meeting. That's the point of the head covering, it would seem. We should, women should be free to follow their convictions on this subject without feeling like they're doing something wrong if they cover their head. But neither should this become a test of fellowship or a requirement for fellowship. When there was a man in chapter 5 who was sexually involved with a stepmother, Paul said, put him out of the church. When these women are not wearing head coverings, Paul does not say, put them out of the church. This is not a test for fellowship. This is not something that you have to do in order to come and fellowship with the church. And again, my conviction on this is that Paul has taken something that was very common, extremely common, universally common in that society, and he's infused it with an, a universal principle. The problem is today, head coverings by women does not have that universal um, use that it did at that time. And so it's hard to know where a person should come down on it today. I just want to finish up again by just reiterating what I think is so important about this passage. 
And that is that God's design is good. And we need to be very careful about what we say that Jesus came to redeem. He came to redeem us from sin. He did not come to redeem us from God's creation design. He came to restore God's creation design. His creation design is very good. It does not need to be redeemed. It needs to be restored. There's a big difference. And so that's what this is about. And under God's creation design, God's design for redemption, God's design for our salvation, we come to Jesus on equal ground as men and women. But God has also designed that even as Christ is the head of the church and Christ is the head of every man, he has designed that the church have male headship and the home have male headship. That is his design. And it is good. And he wants that to be restored. Not that it be, it is not something to be redeemed from. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just again thank you that your ways are always good and are always life. Our ways are not good and our ways bring death. It's as simple as that. And I pray, Lord, that we would just be accepting and willing to be made distinct as we walk in the truth and in obedience with you by faith. And that we would, to your glory, God, be distinctively male and female, men and women. That you would be praised and honored no matter what people of this earth say. We want to live for your glory and for your praise, O oh God. And thank you, Lord, that we can because of Christ the Redeemer who is in us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>